Teletext People. Teletext People is a social record of people that have been involved in either the production or the restoration or the artwork of the blocky medium that once dominated our TV screens in Great Britain before 2012. In the series, you will hear from the pioneers, the people who made it tick, and also people who have only recently visited the Teletext Medium but are in their own way keeping it alive for the preservation for others in the future. In this episode, we speak to Graham Lovelace. I started by asking Graham what his earliest memory of teletext was. My earliest memory of the teletext medium would have been back in the mid-1970s. So back then, we rented a TV uh, from a company called DER. This is in the northwest of England. And living near us was my granddad. And he saved up and bought a TV, a brand new television, um, with a beautiful wooden cabinet. Um, And it had this thing on it called teletext. CFAX on BBC channels and Oracle on ITV. And the most amazing thing about that device was you could actually print the pages. You pressed a button on the remote control and out of the TV, in what today looks like a till receipt in a supermarket, um, were these these pages of information. Um, it was on very silvery paper and if you rubbed it, the letters would actually come off in your fingers. Um, Now, we have to sort of remember this was pre-internet, pre-World Wide Web, no social media, no smartphones, news bulletins three times a day, you had to wait for the news, or or get a, a daily newspaper, and obviously everything was then 12 to 24 hours out of date. So this was absolute cutting edge, live information. Um, live news, weather, sport, etc., going into people's living living rooms, and I was absolutely captivated by this, and would make every excuse to go and see my grand and granddad and sit in front of their TV and go through all the pages. And when I finished, I'd go back all over again, and I'd notice that everything had updated um, in that time. So that was my earliest memory. Um, a decade later, so we're now talking the mid-1980s. I started as a journalist training on local newspapers and then um, made it to London working for the Press Association uh, reporting debates in the House of Commons. Um, So a decade later I was working as a journalist. Um, I moved on from PA to work at ITN on News at One, then Channel 4 News as a producer, uh, then BSB News and then Viz News. I'll explain what Viz News is shortly. In every single one of those newsrooms, 
pride of place on the news desk, right next to the news editor. The news editor is the person that decides out of all the news stories that are happening around the world, um, the stories which really should make the bulletin or the rundown, as it's also called, um, of a TV show, um, a TV program, um, or a newspaper. Pride of Place would be a teletext uh, TV uh, glued to the news headlines. Occasionally also there'd be another one alongside that glued to the, uh, the latest news, the news flash page. Um, and I noticed it was on everywhere. So again, this going back to my granddad's TV and then growing up with the medium, I was very aware of, of, of teletext and uh, CFAX and, and Oracle. So then I was working at Viz News. Now this would have been um, around 1990, uh, late 1990. Viz News was a television news agency. So what it did is it um, had reporters and camera people all over the world and they would send news clips to London uh, via satellite and then we would send them back out to all the broadcasters, all the news broadcasters around the world with scripts. The scripts would explain what was going on in the pictures. Those scripts were sent out using what were known as VBI lines, vertical blanking interval lines, um, spare lines in the old analog television picture. Now that same technology I was told at, te at Viz News was used to distribute teletext pages and yes sure enough at Viz News as well we had a bank of TVs all glued, all linked to, um, all showing the latest teletext news headlines. Now at the time Viz News was partly owned by the BBC um, and because it was it was treated a bit of a, an offshoot of the BBC and we uh, subscribed to the BBC in-house magazine, printed then of course, um, called Aerial. And I used to go through that magazine and, and occasionally at the back, you know, you'd look at the, the job ads. And I noticed on one particular day that there was an advert for a duty news editor at CFAX. And putting everything together, I suddenly thought, okay, this is my opportunity to find out how the hell this thing works. So I made a, um, an arrangement arranged to see the editor of CFAX, knowing that there might be a, an opportunity to <coughs> potentially work there. Uh, and I went across to, to visit him and I saw the, the CFAX operation. So this, again, this would have been um, uh, now, we're talking late 1990. What I saw when I went across was um, a newsroom in the uh, t BBC Television Centre it was next to the Newsround newsroom. It was actually opposite the Top of the Pops office as well. And yes, Jimmy Savile was there and all the other Top of the Pops presenters were there as well, even if Top of the Pops wasn't on TV at the time. Um, it was the most amazing setup, the CFAX newsroom. Um, I had this thought in my mind that there were, everything would be computerized, that people would be sitting at desks with the most amazing technology, uh, creating all these pages, and that there'd be a lot of automated systems. What I actually saw was a very human-driven operation where individuals, journalists, incredibly skilled journalists, that were brilliant at condensing complicated information, complicated uh, stories, into the very limited real estate of a single Teletext or CFAX page. Their sources for those stories were uh, printed 
news stories which were coming out of banks of news printers. So you imagine about six or seven of these uh, machines constantly spewing out uh, stories from the Press Association, uh, Associated Press in America, Reuters, and various other uh, news agencies as well. We had, there were sport agencies, as well as the BBC's own in-house news agency. So when something really big happened, both in print and using this ring main loudspeaker system, um, a voice would tell you uh, that something very big had happened. And that was generally five or six minutes before it appeared on any of those agency uh, uh, printouts. What journalists were doing then is they would tear off a story from the printer. They might make a few phone calls as well. Um, they might be monitoring something on a live TV news channel. They might be monitoring live Prime Minister's question time um, on TV. And they would then balance, literally balance, all these bits of paper uh, on the keyboard in front of them and would type these stories into you know, what was then the BBC microcomputer, the old Acorn computer, um, type it directly into the teletext system uh, at CFAX. So an individual journalist, say, would be allocated to write the news story. They would be told which page number that news story would be appearing on. Then someone else would then have to write the news index uh, line Someone else would then, the, the news editor generally, the duty news editor would then write the headline. And if it was a really, really important story, uh, it would also be a newsflash page as well. The news flashes sometimes had page number links and sometimes this, this, the news was so live that there wasn't actually a page number allocated. The way all those pages then went to air was it actually involved four or five terminals all doing something at the same time. And this was critical because if you didn't, a page would go live on CFAX without a link in the news index, uh, without a link on the news headlines, without the correct fast text. And viewers at home would go to a page and it wouldn't be the page they thought they were going to. So a very human driven service, no automation whatsoever, no newsroom editing system, which I'd used at ITN to compile news at one for instance or even at BSB News we, we used a, a newsroom editing system there or a newsroom system. So I learned very very quickly that this was a, a service that was driven by incredibly committed highly skilled individuals um, that had a very good feel as well for the technology and what it could do. Um, they were skilled in writing stories incredibly fast incredibly uh, succinctly, uh, brevity obviously is everything on, on, on teletext, and incredibly accurately as well. Accuracy absolutely vital. The beauty of course is if something was wrong it could be corrected instantaneously. Um, and I was told then uh, at, at the, in this meeting at the BBC that um, you know the position of CFAX within BBC News then, it was like this uh, this pyramid or triangle where there'd be an event happening and the very first part of the organization that would report that event would be CFAX. It was at the very, very pinnacle 
of the news operation. And then behind that would come the uh, the news bulletins uh, that were going out on air, both radio and TV. And yes, the, the BBC news uh, bulletins, all the journalists in the BBC also relied on CFAX and relied on CFAX getting it right first time. Otherwise, there was a risk of stories going out which were untrue, um, a story which you know had, had been written um, not in, in, in the best way, etc. So there I was at, at CFAX having this just brief introduction, and I immediately fell in love with this medium. I thought, you know, again, going back to my granddad's TV, going back to the understanding how the VBI lines worked at Viz News, and now the journalistic part of it, which, you know, as a trained journalist, it, everything sort of came together plus this fascination in how this medium worked. And I could see that there was an opportunity to modernize the way that that newsroom was operating, having worked in lots of other newsrooms as well. Um, I got on well with the editor and he offered me a job, uh, the job that I'd seen in Arial. And I joined very soon afterwards as duty news editor at Stefax. I was one of four duty news editors um, reporting to uh, the editor. Um, the team was about 30 individuals um, and it would we would staff up with freelancers on Saturdays. All the latest goal scores and goal flashes, again, all manually inputted. Um, all the share prices, uh, they were done. Now, they, were, we, they weren't live as such. They would update every hour and a half. That was a limit in place, put in place by the stock exchange. But an individual would actually update all those share prices manually, by hand, uh, hundreds of share prices um, in, those hour, in that hour and a half. And they would do that uh, four or five times a day. So I joined CFAX with this um, uh, desire to help modernize uh, the operation uh, in terms of how the production side worked. And we spoke to lots of companies that were then in the process of building uh, new teletext newsroom systems. Now, at that time, teletext as a medium was taking off all over Europe. Um, and the BBC uh, was the place where lots of other teletext operations around the world uh, would go to to find out how this was going, so how, how this was operating. So behind the scenes, there was a burgeoning uh, technology industry that was starting to create teletext systems uh, for broadcasters. And we looked at a lot of those, those systems. So I, I was at CFAX from late 1990 then to uh, mid-1992. Um, as I say, we worked at the BBC Television Centre, which was quite a thrill in its own right. Um, you know, we were, as I say, part of the, the BBC News operation. And as duty news um, uh, editor, it was my role as well to attend the main BBC News conference in the morning, which took place at around eight o'clock in the morning. All the editors of all the main news bulletins, plus all the major correspondents um, were in a room. And we would go through the previous day's uh, news agenda. We'd look at that day's news agenda. And it was my role as the duty news organizer uh, or duty news editor of CFAX to tell everybody the um, stories which would like to come up later that day and how 
teletext, the CFAX operation, had actually reported the live news the day before. And I could see amongst these incredibly experienced and you know household names, most of them around the, the room, this awe that they, <laughs> they held uh, the CFAX operation in. And none of them had ever visited the CFAX newsroom. And I, you know, as a sort of, please don't visit it, because when you do see it, you'll see something which is incredibly primitive. But the people who do it are incredible. So, yes, they were in awe of the, uh, the CFAX operation. Um, but CFAX felt like a Cinderella operation within the BBC. Um, BBC didn't really promote or market the CFAX news service um, particularly well. Um, it was always an afterthought whenever there was a, a great um, celebration about how the BBC uh, reported a certain story. They'd never include um, someone from CFAX when they would you know, say how this major breaking news story was handled. Um, so as I say, it was a bit of a bit of an afterthought really. Um, and they were, as I say, they were going through this modernization program. Um, so I started to look at, with another uh, team of people, looking at all these various new newsroom systems. So that got me more into the, the technology of how teletext could be produced in, a, in more of an automated live newsroom setting. Um, so that, that took me through to to about 19, if you think now about early 1992. Now that was a a major, major landmark for the television industry in the UK. Um, back then, all of the ITV franchises um, were being auctioned. This was legislation that was put in place by the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. One of the TV licenses that was up for auction was known as the Public Teletext License. Now, Teletext at that time, Oracle we're talking now, um, was owned by the ITV companies. And ITV back then was a federation of 15 individual companies. Um, each of them, uh, each of those licenses were then up for grabs, plus the Teletext license. So even at CFAX, you know, we were reporting the television uh, license bids as a story, and we also reported uh, the bidding process for the you know, our rival uh, for Oracle um, and we reported indeed the day of the result of the public teletext uh, license award uh, there were four bids um, four bidders um, there was a consortium of associated newspapers Philips and media ventures ITN also bid uh, for the service ITN also um, produced the new service, uh, produced the new service for um, Oracle. Um, there were a couple of other uh, bidders as well. The service that, uh, the bid that came from Associated Philips and Media Ventures, Media Ventures was a, a venture capital company that helped put together that consortium. They won the, the franchise auction with a bid. So in order to win the license, you had to bid a large amount of money and have an application document that made sense, that explained what you were going to do with a with the services of both TV and teletext, um, and how you were going to make this operation bigger, more successful, etc. Um, 
Now, the, that consortium bid £8.2 million pounds, um, a year for the privilege of running the public teletext license. That was far more than many of the television <laughs> franchises went. I think Central won its uh, license for £2,000. Um, and many people, including half the newsroom at CFAX, obviously funded by the BBC license fee, so didn't have to worry too much about where its income is coming from. We felt that they had overbid, that this was not going to have a, a happy ending. But I was starting to see things in Press Gazette, the um, magazine for journalists, weekly magazine for journalists. They were starting certain people from the, uh, the teletext um, operation, uh, backed by Associated. Associated, obviously, the publisher of the, the Daily Mail, Mail on Sunday. Um, they were talking very, very positively about their ideas for this medium, for the Teletext medium. And the fact that these were big organizations, big successful organizations, I mean, Associated Newspapers, um, Philips Electronics, the consumer electronics giant that had helped invent the, the Teletext chip back in the day, um, this was a brilliant marriage of, of content and technology and all the financial acumen that came from the venture capital company as well at Media Ventures. So I actually felt, well, yes, they bid a lot of money, but if they can take this to the next level, um, then they stand a chance. Now, little did I know that in the CFAX newsroom was someone that had been advising the associated uh, team. And that person came over me to me on the day that we wrote this story about them, this consortium winning the franchise. And he took me to the BBC bar. And over a few drinks, he explained that he had advised, been advising this other consortium and that he was leaving CFAX. He was the mastermind of all the technology in the CFAX newsroom. Brilliant guy, good journalist as well. And he said, you should join us, <laughs> just like that. Um, and I thought, okay, uh, but I'm happy here at, at, at CFAX and this is a, a brand new startup. He said, yeah, it's me and three people. <laughs> um, so I said, okay, well, I'll come and have a look at the operation. And of course, there was no operation, but I did. I went across to uh, 101 Farm Lane in Fulham and I met somebody who was then the consultant editor of the service, who turned out to be the same person that I'd worked with at BSB News uh, way before. Journalism is a very small village, um, I should say. Um, so I met the, uh, the, the this person that I knew, and I met a couple of people from Associated as well, and they were very, very keen to know how CFAX worked, what my ideas would be for the future of this medium, um, what I thought of their bid document, their application. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think very much of it at all. Um, they clearly didn't know very much about the, um, the medium itself in terms of the limitations of the medium. Um, at one point, they even talked about black text on a white background, which I explained to them just wasn't possible on teletext. But of course, they came from a newspaper world. This was a very, very important win for Associated Newspapers. Newspapers back then were not allowed to own 
TV franchises uh, under government uh, under British law. Um, this was known as media ownership rules. Um, but here they were sort of coming in. There was a sort of creeping sort of backdoor route into something on, on mainstream television. Um, and so they treated this, or they were treating this as a television franchise. And the precursor to Associated's or the Daily Mail Group's ambitions for television, um, which would become um, in it really big uh, later. Uh, so there I was again uh, at a meeting with these people and <laughs> they offered me a job um, and they said come and join us. Uh, so this was now mid-1992. Uh, work with this guy, his name was John Home, lovely, lovely guy. And you'd be John's deputy and you could put a team together. You can recruit whoever you want. Um, we're launching in six months time. It's going to be far more complicated than Oracle ever was. We have to be regional, and by regional we mean 15 ITV regions. But some of those regions also had sub-regions. So it's actually a 28 regional service. Um, we're going to be, we're going to essentially, we're out to, um, you know, be not only CFAX's biggest rival, but we want to show that this medium can be popular that it can lead the daily discussion, can lead daily debate. Um, and we want this to be a mass market service, uh, which is absolutely fundamental because it was funded by, you know, we're funded by advertising. And for that, we need a very large mass audience. So, yeah, I joined. <laughs> and my very first job um, at joining in June 1992 was to look at that bid document. Now that was really, really important because the license that the consortium had, had won, by the way, at that stage, we didn't even have a name for the company. Um, that bid documents became the license and the regulator at the time was called the Independent Television Commission, the ITC. A number of commitments were made in that bid document, uh, some of them, some of which were pretty impossible to deliver. Um, but the guys that Associated thought, oh, well, that's a great idea. Let's just stick it in the bid document and you know, we'll, we'll sort it out further down the line if we win. But the guys at the ITC were pretty draconian and were going through that bid document and turning it into the actual license. So I had to point out to both Associated and the ITC uh, that there were some things we were gonna have to just park and introduce after launch, after six months, because we had so much to do to build this teletech service from scratch. Um, remember, I'm in a building in Fulham, 101 Farm Lane, a former tram shed, completely empty, an empty room, a, a vast cavern basically, but completely empty. Um, and we had six months to produce this this service. And the ITC were were pretty good actually they the regulator was understood okay we will create this working license for you um and let's see how this goes there were still some niggles in my mind though there were some big big uh things which had been promised which made me think wait a minute you know we're gonna have to change a lot after we we launch but all all at all attention then went on 
how we were going to put a team together to create this teletech service in just six months. No holidays, no breaks, no weekends. I worked flat out every single day uh, for six months. And indeed, everybody that we recruited did the same. At the end of uh, July, August time, um, we had recruited the entire company, it was 25 people. Um, I remember that because there was a small patio outside uh, 101 Farm Lane and we had a party uh, for new recruits and there were 25 people there. Um, I mean, it was just insane the uh, the task that was before us it was it felt like we were at the foothills of of Everest and we were never going to make it beyond base camp there was just so much to do um, John was a lovely lovely guy uh, John's slight weakness was he'd never worked in the mediums so of course I had and the people I was recruiting I recruited some great people from CFAX there were some people coming across from Oracle uh, which hadn't gone off air by then um, and there were some brilliant journalists as well that we recruited uh, that very, very quickly turned into brilliant teletext service, uh, teletext people as well. There were two huge things that were on my uh, my lap as the deputy editor of, of teletext, but essentially the person putting the, the service together. Uh, the first one was the pagination, um, which we called it, all the pages, all the page numbers, logical sections for all of the major services. We had two channels, so we had ITV and Channel 4. No relationship with ITV or Channel 4, we just used the their VBI lines, those vertical blanking interval lines um, on the back of their, their TV services. One of the limitations uh, in the bidding process was that we had been allocated, I think it was seven and a half VBI lines which was about half of what Oracle then had and half of what CFAX then had. Now that meant we had far fewer pages at our disposal, but we had this huge obligation in this bid document to do all these things. Um, and the way round it is that we, and we wanted always to have, again, a mass market service appealing to everybody. So we wanted to have, you know, women's magazine, kids pages, entertainment pages, fun pages, dear old bamboozle, all that stuff. All of this was going to take up capacity. So how were we going to squeeze all of this, um, this quart into a pint pot? And the way that we, the solution that we devised is that we would have um, various features would go live at different times of the day. Features magazines, as we called them. Um, so not everything was available all the time. And the ITC understood this. They realized we had severe capacity restrictions in, the term, in terms of the total number of pages. The other huge thing that was on my lap at the time was dealing with information providers. Now that was a group of, in some cases, individuals. Um, and in some cases, very much was one person. So that was, would be our our Teletext Vicar, for instance, who would do the daily prayer on CFAX and would update his page at midnight, religiously. Um, and range so at the small end to the AA um, that produced all of our um, road information. A company called Ocean Routes in Glasgow um, that produced all our weather services uh, for us, and plus inshore um, services as well. and. Uh, so various other things. 
and all of the other information providers. We had an Agony Uncle, Agony Aunt, we had phishing pages, all of the DIY pages, all of these had somebody producing content at the end of them. And they all worked remotely. So we had to devise a means whereby, again, pre-internet, they would send us these pages electronically, often using <laughs> sending us a floppy disk. Um, and by sending us the, this information, or indeed back in the day, these, there were things called ISD, ISDN lines. But the biggest information provider <coughs> was the, uh, the press association that I had worked with and worked for uh, when I first moved up to London working as a parliamentary reporter. Um, so here I was, uh, having worked at PA at the tender age of 24, 25, um, and now I would have been then about 30 something, probably 30. Suddenly I was PA's biggest uh, provider of, of cash because the Teletext contract was the biggest contract that PA had ever won. PA, PA Press Association produced all of our news pages, sport pages, finance pages, and racing pages. Um, so that suddenly I had this other huge thing, which was to bring, to teach PA how to do teletext, and also understand how PA was going to produce this. Now, brilliantly, PA recognized um, before the uh, the license process that they were likely to be the nominated news provider and they had started to invest in their own in-house um, newsroom system which is called Titan and PA obviously the one great thing about it you know this is a news organization that's been around for over a century um, they knew everything about live news live sport goal flashes all of that stuff all the live bit they were absolutely brilliant at but PA produced a service which went to journalists. At the end of the PA feed was a group of sub-editors that would rewrite the PA copy and it would then go out. So there was always someone at the end of the line, at the end of the PA feed, um, responsible for what viewers or readers saw. We wanted PA to actually take responsibility uh, within the uh, confines of the, the license that we had with the regulator to take responsibility for the pages that they were creating. Otherwise, we would have to in, in, employ an army of people at Teletext to just check and rewrite the PA pages. PA took on that responsibility and did it absolutely brilliantly. So there were two things in parallel that I was having to oversee, putting together the operation at Farm Lane and also putting together the operation at PA. PA employed um, a brilliant individual, a series of individuals actually, um, who took on this responsibility absolutely brilliantly and they took to this like a duck to water. Um, that's not to say there weren't teething difficulties and there were the occasional um, issues, but wow, what a, what a job they did. It was just, just incredible. And some of the individuals that came through that process, you know, went on to absolutely brilliant things including a guy called Pete Clifton who originally was uh, like myself the deputy he was the deputy editor of the, the teletext operation at PA um, and he went on to be the uh, the head of uh, the CFAX operation at BBC News he launched the BBC News website and is now the editor-in-chief of the Press Association so uh, teletext has been responsible for some brilliant careers in the, over the years 
So there we were, uh, putting together this, this huge operation. We were recruiting a team at Teletext. We were gradually then starting to create dummy pages. So this was now moving to sort of August, September time. And we actually started to say to our journalists, and we had PA doing this as well, right, from this point onwards, I think it was the 1st of November, we want to start pretending that we're live. Uh, and we want to get into the process because we had such short time to do this. We want to understand how all the issues that are likely to come up um, by actually having us producing a, a live service. Um, now, another thing was happening at, at Teletext, obviously, and that's all the advertising. So everything I said, you imagine there's another parallel world where at the bottom of every single Teletext page was a two-line advert. Now, it's essentially a great big link. We called them fractionals, um, and they, they linked to an advertising page. Um, and those fractionals, that was the sort of the real estate that was owned by the the advertising team. Um, Oracle had um, obviously been a, a, a successful commercial operation, um, largely, and, and we we took on this and, and, and took it to the next level as well, uh, largely in the uh, areas of holiday advertising, uh, late flights, um, horse racing tips, and financial services and products. Um, Oracle had this strange thing, though, that the holiday advertisers were only allowed to add, update their prices once a day. I have no idea why this happened, but it, it just meant that you know you were guaranteed still a, a a good deal on Oracle, but there was no internal competition between the holiday operators and the holiday companies um, and the flights companies. So. We had this early idea at Teletext, what if we just remove that restriction and the advertisers could also update live, just as much as PA was updating our news services live. And th those advertisers would also have to take on responsibility to be legal, decent, honest and true. And if they're advertising a holiday for £15 in Greece for two weeks, and you've got to buy a beach towel for £5 on top, um, that that really does exist. Um, and the advertisers took on board that responsibility as well. And again, working with the, again, the, the regulator, the ITC had no understanding of how this might work, but we then had to train all the advertisers in, in you know, if you're going to say something on, on this screen, which is alongside a news page, the news obviously has to be accurate and truthful. Your advertising content therefore also has to be honest and truthful. And it was, and it, and it worked absolutely brilliantly. Now, there again, there was the internal conversation which you'll always have around um, why are the fractionals always, uh, you know, yellow on fuchsia and flashing? Um, and that you'd get a journalist every now and again and say, my page has been destroyed by this huge advert. We also created mini pages. So we increased the, the size of those fractionals on the last of four frames, for instance. Um, but, you know, this is how we were going to make money. So we had to take all this on board. That was another massive, massive operation, though, at Teletext, getting all that advertising um, produced and ready. So again, from sort of early November going into December 92, we were testing this. We were testing how the pages were distributed from Farm Lane, Fulham, 
to the 28 transmitter sites around the country. Um, the license document had actually said that we were going to use some satellite system which hadn't been invented. Um, and I think we ended up using, again, it was some form of ISDN line. And what would happen is we would send all the teletext pages live, very, very low latency to each of these transmitter sites, and they would be inserted into the VBI uh, lines at the transmitter sites. Occasionally, like all computers do, you'd get a situation where a computer would stick, would freeze, um, and someone would have to go to one of these far-flung locations um, and fix the teletext computer, and sometimes that was our own engineering staff as well. So they got to know all of the iconic uh, transmitter sites all around the country. We're talking Great Britain here, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, England, as well as Northern England, including the Emily Moore transmitter in, in Yorkshire, for instance. Um, again, so all of this, the engineering operation, again, working closely in tandem with the uh, editorial and advertising team. Um, we create, we bought a, a that newsroom system that I had been trialing at CFAX. We bought that system. Um, it worked. It was absolutely fine. To, as I say, PA had their own system. It was incompatible with our system, other, other than the fact that it used the same basic Teletext standard to, to create the pages, but we had to then acquire some terminals so we could actually see the, the, the PA operation before pages um, went live. And then gradually, as I say, PA then took on that responsibility that they were going to be the, uh, they would oversee the quality of their own service and pages would go straight to to viewers. What I then created in the middle of the operation at Teletext was the what we called the, I think it's called the center desk. And that was a team, again, of highly experienced journalists that could oversee this this operation. And this was very much like a you know, sort of um, Houston control um, operation where these people had banks of TVs around them, um, plus those PA terminals, plus all the information providers, um, and live news as well. And they were just constantly monitoring everything that was going on. So this is pre-launch, and we're now into December 92, so, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and we then, we were trying to iron out some of the issues that we uh, thought we were going to have, and gradually this this beast started to, to come to, live, to, to life. Um, but there were things being added to the service right up to the day that we actually went live. The night we went live, so that would have been uh, midnight on January the 1st, 1993. Um, the chairman of Teletext was Sir David English. He'd been a, a formidable editor of the Daily Mail. Um, I got on very well with, with David. Um, he was fascinated with this technology, he was fascinated the whole way that um, this system was going to work. Um, he was then in his early to mid-60s, um, but it, there was this sort of youthful fascination. You could see it, his eyes would light up when he came over to Teletext, and he'd love to spend time with the journalists there uh, talking about you know, how this, this system that we'd created in just six months was working, um, 
and again he was he was like I was in my granddad's living room in the in the mid 1970s. Um, so David English was you know a key part of the the, the teletext story which I'll come back to shortly. So the night of the the launch, um, you know, we'd all then been working, as I say, every single day, flat out, uh, for months. Um, and there was a sense that, and, and we've been producing these pages daily, we've been producing this, this service daily, that, um, that we sort of knew how this thing was, was going to go. Um, Oracle had the famous countdown page. They were going off air by reducing the pixels on their screen. Um, until the page ultimately went black. I think there was a pause of about 30 seconds to a minute uh, in between Oracle saying goodbye and the Teletext pages, our Teletext Limited pages going live. Um, in some parts of the country that was a, a longer pause because again it was pages being sent to transmitter sites and being inserted into VBI lines. But gradually through the night, Teletext service went live. Um, the name, name of the company, uh, I remember, so I was then, uh, this is just taking a few steps back, I remember going into a, a meeting, um, so I was also a direct, the editorial director, I became the editorial director at, at Teletext, so I was attending board meetings and one of the early decisions that we had to make was a name of the company and a name of the service. And um, Basically, there was about five of us that were almost locked in a room until we'd come up with a name. Um, and we thought of everything, absolutely everything we could think of under the sun. And in the end, we went with the generic name of the medium as the name of both um, of the company. So it was Teletext Limited and the service then was known as Teletext on ITV and Channel 4. Um, and the license obviously was known as the Public Teletext License. So we were Teletext with a capital T. And the advantage of that is we did get a lot of the publicity, anyone referring to the word teletext, you know, we, they would refer to teletext with a capital T. So we wanted to be the sort of the brand name, like when people say they're hoovering the carpet or now let's Google that, that the, the name of the service becomes the, the action, the activity. Um, so yeah, we went live and um, this is now January the 1st, 1993 and uh, some of us had hired a room at the local hotel called Hotel Lily, I think it was. Um, didn't get much sleep. We were back in the Teletext operation at Farm Lane about six, seven o'clock in the morning. And as I walked in, I could hear one thing and it was telephones ringing. Um, it was viewers phoning in saying, where is my knitting page? Where's my farming page? Where's where's my shipping forecast? Um, why have you moved the news to Channel Four? Um, all of these questions. Under the license, we had to listen to every single one of these uh, queries, these and and handle all calls um, in a very professional manner, and we had to log every call as well. Uh, there were thousands in the first week, thousands of calls. Um, Things settled down. People got used to the fact that page numbers, yes, had changed. They got used to the fact they had to wait for some features magazines to go live. Um, but there was also a group of individuals that, and I realized very, very quick, again, this is pre-social media, pre-web, pre-just about everything you can think of in the information revolution that we've now take for granted. 
that there was a group of people out there, a community of people, for whom teletext now and CFAX um, was a lifeline. That this was a friend, um, people who uh, couldn't sleep at night, and television went off air, there might be a test card on TV, the teletext was still working. And they would sit and watch this. And this was an app, you know, we had night watchmen, security people, uh, cab firms, etc. They absolutely, this was their, this is all they had. Um, and, you know, we had changed page numbers, etc. And they got used to that after a while. But they were also phoning in for someone to talk to. And again, this was something which we had to take very, very seriously. And often the the call would go to the center desk and they'd say, can I speak to the editor? And just about every evening, if I hung around that, that operation um, after seven o'clock, there were repeated calls from certain individuals. And these people were absolutely amazing. They were so knowledgeable about the teletext medium. Um, and they knew everything uh, about the, the service, and they were a font of all knowledge of how the thing might evolve as well. And these were normal people around the country. So I had this idea that we would create viewer groups around the country and that we would actually reach out to these people and they would become members of our uh, people that would provide feedback. But we'd actually give them a membership of something and there'd be a community of people. And we had about, I think at one stage, about 10 of these all over the UK. And I would go to them and there was, you know, at one meeting we had hundreds of people in the room. Um, and I remember one guy saying, um, you know, there's something you've really got to help me with. And I said, well, what's that? He said, well, my son's got size 13 feet. I said, well, how am I going to help you? And he said, he needs new football boots. We can't afford new boots, but you could put something on your teletext page. And again, I thought, okay, well, there will come a time when we can do that come back to that shortly. Mm. I had someone phoning in saying, um, again, one of these sort of correspondents, there were many ways they were, saying, um, I live in a flat. The neighbor's got this really, really horrible dog. It barks all night. Can you put something on their TV to tell them, to tell their dog to stop barking? This was a serious call. I had people serving life prison sentences writing to me saying, could you help? campaign for my release. Uh, we had, again, this was, people looked at Teletext as this life support, as a friend, um, as a companion, and we started to think, okay, let, let's, let's really drill into this. And we gradually, as we, as the launch, the post-launch problems as launches at every single media launch you can ever think of, I became the editor about six months um, after we launched. Uh, the consultant editor left. Um, and suddenly, I, I then was tasked with changing teletext um, and putting right some of the mistakes that we'd made. And there were a few mistakes. Um, news went on to ITV, for instance, from Channel 4. We got some more VBI lines, so we could actually put those feature services live all the time. Um, and then we, we were approached by all of these companies all over the world, particularly television manufacturers that had heard that the, you know, Philips was behind this, Associated was behind this. Um, 
it was even starting to look like the 8.2 million pound a year bid you know was was actually going to work out okay um business plans were showing even after six months after launch that this was going to be a commercial success um so suddenly we became as i'd experienced briefly at cfax suddenly people were coming all over the world to teletex limited to farm lane uh, from japanese manufacturers to european teletext um, uh, operators wanting to see what we had done how we'd gone about it the systems that we use the the content that we were pumping out um, at all of those uh, in those those regional services just under 4,000 pages uh, at each of those uh, regions updated 40,000 times a day <laughs> incredible isn't it what one of the things so that with mid 93 one of the great um, things which helped the commercial success of teletext limited was two huge uh, things which had started to happen um, both from a, one was a technology uh, factor which was when we launched the service um, just under half the homes in the country had a TV equipped with a teletext chip the means to receive teletext so it was about 48-49% that went over 50% late 93 early 94 so we could tell advertisers that most homes in the country or the majority of homes now over 50% and that was racing away you couldn't at that point buy a television without a teletext chip in it even the smallest portables um, not all those TVs had fast text the four colored prompts at the bottom of the screen um, but that also was getting better and the latest TVs had had fast text latest TVs could also store more pages as well they could you could actually store um, pages within had more memory when we talk about memory you know a the original teletext uh, service or teletext receivers had 1k memory <laughs> uh, so there was no storage which is why we had to keep on rebroadcasting and the constant viewer niggle was why have you got so many cycling pages why do i have to come in on page 16 of 93 or whatever it was which it never was that was always a, an apocryphal story um but particularly with the holiday advertising you know for a particular destination there would be dozens of pages uh, cycling around and if someone missed that page say it was a cinema listings page for a certain town if they missed it they would have to wait and the reason why they had to wait is there was no storage we couldn't just pump out the service and it was captured by tvs and people could then scroll through the service that we had to keep on rebroadcasting it every six seconds i think it was um all those thousands and thousands of pages across all of those regional sites and so each region was different um and but even that was starting to to get better just a reminder that if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app you can also find this on the youtube channel and if you are watching on youtube you can find us on your favorite podcasting app you can find out ways that you can help with the show in the show notes So 
What also started to develop um, in mid-93, we became aware of what's known as higher level teletext. This was a better way of presenting um, information and graphics on the screen, um, which had been limited uh, to that iconic Lego brick look of teletext, the, the big clunky pixels known as level one teletext. And that was limited since the early days of teletext when it was launched back in the early 1970s by the IBA um, precursor to, uh, or the body which ran ITV um, and the BBC. Now, the levels that we were being exposed to was called level two, level two and a half, and there were higher levels as well. Um, and there was an organization in Europe called the U European Broadcasting Union, the EBU. That's the organization that produces Eurovision, bless them, uh, based in Geneva. And I was invited to come across to help um, understand more about level two, level two and a half, and whether or not teletext would be an early adopter of, of this, new, this new standard. And that was a, a branch of the EBU because the EBU teletext uh, group. It was all of the European teletext operators. Um, some were commercial, some were licensed fee funded like CFAX. CFAX used to attend alongside me as well. So there I was with the editor of CFAX that I had gone to visit all those uh, months before. Um, and we would swap war stories, would go through how things were evolving, etc. But the one thing that was always on the agenda was this level two, level two and a half. Um, I looked at it and you know looked at it with absolute horror. What level two and level two and a half gave us was something approaching a curve, but not a, not a full circle. The, the challenge I always gave our graphics designers at Teletext was the Coca-Cola logo. Could you recreate this logo without using a digitizer camera? Um, and you've got half an hour to do it. Now, brilliant individuals like Paul Rose would not only do that, they would actually then put a glass and <laughs> the can pouring the coconut as well um, and try and animate it. <laughs> um, but level two wouldn't even give us a, you know, the, the smooth curve of the sea of Coca-Cola. And it gave us more colors, but I mean, it was rubbish. Um, and I was aware late 93 that there was something else that was coming down the tracks that, you know, could potentially spell the end of teletext. Da, 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 da. What that was, of course, wasn't actually the World Wide Web. It was online services, um, a precursor to all the things we use now on the web. There were three big ones. CompuServe, um, that's an American company. Um, there was AOL, America Online, that had just launched a UK operation um, as well. And there was something called Prodigy. Now, Prodigy was really interesting because it looked like teletext, and, but it was distributed um, using uh, the internet. But there was no browser as such. The, the interface was very much like level one teletext. Um, so very basic um, sort of clunky fonts, single font, and very basic graphics. Um, AOL, America Online, and CompuServe. CompuServe was largely a chat series of chat forums, and AOL was a fully fledged, um, in a country, America we're talking, in a country which never had teletext, for reasons I could go into in another 
version of this. Um, they did have a service on AOL, which was news, sport, weather, finance, all that sort of stuff. And they did have a you know, certain level of sophisticated graphics and, and artwork, but it was still very, very clunky. These services were delivered to PCs using dial-up modems, and I visited them all and, and used them all and tried to understand, again, how these things worked, what the information providers that they had, were they going to be a serious rival to Teletext and all that sort of stuff. And at that time, because they were all subscription services and they were pretty expensive, um, the view was we could just watch this development, but we didn't have to worry too much about it. Going from 93 into 94, though, uh, something major happened, and that was the launch of the Mosaic browser. And that's when the web started to become a consumer entity. So, of course, Tim Berners-Lee had invented the web, um, what was it, 89, 1990? Um, but it was only really known by a few nerdy individuals that had the ability to to create, to, well, A, to understand HTML, and B, um, download pages. But the Mosaic browser, which obviously then fed into the Netscape browser later that year, that changed everything. Suddenly, you didn't need to know computer language. You did need a modem, you just needed a computer as well, or a laptop. They were also in their infancy at the time. Um, and these services were free, and that was a key thing, free. And I started to see that on these, um, the very, very sort of primordial version of the web, um, that some of our holiday advertisers were starting to experiment with going direct to consumers. The very advertisers that were paying a small fortune to appear on Teletext. These advertisers, by the way, had no premises whatsoever. They would buy their holidays um, on a spot market, generally late availability market, and then offload those holidays on the Teletext with a capital T um, service. If they could go direct to consumers, and if consumers could actually buy those holidays, bypassing teletext, then we were we were in trouble. Mm. And also, if people were going to then spend time um, using this newfangled web thing to get their news, their sport, etc., they wouldn't be spending that time with teletext either. So we had to do one of two things. We had to join this new movement. We had to join this revolution. We had to get on the web quickly. And understand how that worked and we had to understand the business model uh, of how teletext was going to operate in a world where increasingly you could see it happening people were going to actually be able to transact their own bookings for holidays flights um, etc and actually talk directly to those who have the stock the the travel operator the hotel etc um, and they were also going starting to go direct. Um, so on the first of that, getting teletext on the web, um, that then fell to me to explain to our shareholders that although they had backed this this incredibly entrepreneurial um, exercise, and, and it turned out to be a very, very good money spender for them, um, that something was, was happening. Um, and that was difficult. That was really, really hard. 
and I'm talking now 94, 95, going into 96, um, getting the funds together to create a teletech service on the web and explaining to our shareholders that we needed to, you know, have a life raft because there was something else which could actually take over was was difficult. I was seen as the sort of harbinger of doom. Um, C's not even on it yet. And they weren't. There are only two websites in the country, Telegraph, Electronic Telegraph, um, set up by a good friend of mine called Hugo Drayton, and Teletext on the web. What we did is we basically had a service scraping pages from the live broadcast and then repurposing them uh, in a viewer within an HTML page. And people could go backwards and forwards instead of, but they could also insert page numbers as well. So there was a web-based version of Teletext. We also then said, okay, well, let's take that one step further and we'll actually create stories and write them in HTML as well. So there was a, alongside the live service, we had background features that were written long form. Um, and as the graphics improved, that became more of a um, successful service. But again, the, you know, the sales model of actually advertising on the web was very, very different. Um, it was based on people clicking banners. It was based on uh, you know, the number of people that you could expose those, those ads to. Whereas Teletext was advertisers that would place holidays or you know, racing odds on a page. And if those phones didn't start ringing at the end of, in their own offices, they knew there was something wrong. It was instant absolutely instant. So we had to learn a completely new um, thing as well from the commercial operation. Um, so suddenly there was this, we had Teletext and ITV in Channel 4. We were producing a Teletext service for um, on the back of a travel channel. So we had something called Travel Text. We had a service um, on the web. And then something else was coming down the tracks, which was digital television. And I remember the very first time when someone said to me, um, oh, you do realize that all of this is going to disappear, don't you? And I thought they were talking about the web. And no, they were talking about digital terrestrial television, where there was no VBI lines. <laughs> um, there was no capacity as well. There wasn't even a license. Um, so how on earth were we going to navigate this one? So this was another thing to have to get my head around um, and understand. So television obviously was going digital. This was now 95, 96. It took a long time to to get off the ground. It finally got off the ground in 98. Um, we immediately saw the opportunity that there would be <clears throat> set-top boxes. So the, the precursor service, obviously, to what is now known as Freeview, was called On Digital. Um, there was an opportunity then to have a proper set-top box with memory. Hurrah! At last, there could be some cache that we would send out pages and they'd be stored. Because there was um, digital capacity, which hopefully would be much bigger than we had on, on Teletext, um, replacing those VBI lines, we could also have far more um, expansive uh, graphics, you know, realistic imagery, proper photographs, limitless fonts, limitless color palettes, all of that stuff. Um, we might not even have to have page numbers, all this sort of thing. Um, so we started to get our hands on all the various set-top boxes that could have been chosen uh, to understand what the middleware, what the software would be in those boxes to start to devise services for digital TV. So this was another operation to get staff for, to understand what that 
and there were three competing set-top box software systems back then. Um, and it was, I mean, that was a really, really difficult time. So we, we had all of these things happening at the same time. And the digital text, teletext service, uh, service launched um, alongside the on digital service uh, back in, I think it was November 98. And again, we were learning the, the positives and the, and the many negatives of the way that that was, was operating. The big issue there was that Teletext was never granted enough capacity. Again, back to the, the same story as the 7.5 VBI lines. We weren't granted enough capacity to actually make that service look as revolutionary as it could be. The other issue with the digital Teletext service is that we were no longer on the back of ITV and Channel 4. So we lost that linkage with the mass audience and the audience habit that in between the ad breaks of watching Coronation Street say that they would go to Teletext to check a goal score or the news headlines, which obviously helped our viewing figures as well. Suddenly we were relegated to a channel in the back end of the on digital uh, channel lineup. So we had to spend money marketing the service. Now I could see all of these things that were starting to, to come together. We were either going to do this thing properly, uh, both web-based and digital TV-based, um, or there was no point doing them at all. At the time, so we're now talking 98 going into 99, um, Sir David English died in 98, I think it was. Um, his boss, the previous Lord Rothermere, um, died uh, soon afterwards, about three months afterwards. Um, so I lost my mentor at Teletext and I was starting to get quite frankly sick and tired of constantly asking for more people to devise new services to help try and work out where we were going as a company. Um, and I realized, I didn't even know what the term meant at the time, I realized that we were a cash cow. And I realized that because I started to put myself on business courses um, and the course that eventually the uh, associate actually paid for was for me to go to Harvard Business School in 1999 and I went out there for a, a three-month course called the Advanced Management Program and I learned all about cash cows and what I learned was is that when shareholders have a cash cow that is a company that just drips cash that might be in a part of the market where it requires huge investment, you have a choice. You can either continue to run that business and just milk it for the money that it's throwing off. Or you can say, we've got this audience and we'll transfer them in from this analog world into this new digital world, this new online world, but that's gonna require investment. Um, and I realized that we were a cash cow and we were probably never gonna get the sufficient amount of investment to do the latter. So I went on that course thinking, was I going to come back? I mean, this was a really, really big decision. I was treated as one of the associated editors, although I was very different. Obviously, I couldn't express an opinion, strictly neutral. Um, I was paid well. It was, a, you know, Teletext had been a seven and a half year commitment to me it had been my entire career in the 90s essentially 
including CFAX before. Um, and it was a very, very, very big decision that I took. But I came back from Harvard and in, it would have been December 99, um, announced to the staff, but who had grown by then to over 300 people, uh, stood on the gantry at Farm Lane and I said I was leaving. And that was really, really hard. I mean, I'm even getting a bit emotional now, actually, even thinking about it. It was really, really hard, you know, because I'd actually brought a number of people in. I'd, I'd helped them. They looked to me to take this medium into the future, and I was leaving. And I felt I was letting people down. But I couldn't continue doing what I was doing. I mean, this was... There was also a, a sense at the time, this was so, you know, late 1999, the dot-com bubble was absolutely still as big as it was ever going to get. So it hadn't burst then. It burst in early 2000. And there were lots of people like me that were leaving big jobs to do their own thing um, on the web. Um, and I'd worked out a couple of little startup ideas, but in my heart of hearts, I knew I had to leave. Um, and so I did. I left, and you know it was very, very difficult. And, and it's you know even thinking back and just reading back some of the cuttings to do this this talk today, um, it takes me right back. Some things are pretty hazy 30 years ago. Some things are just as vivid as they as they were then. Um, and I left, and you know it was even hard looking at the service. I couldn't even press that teletext button on the remote control for for months. Um, I wanted nothing to do with anything <laughs> which, which was ever again going to do with launching something really big like that again. Um, the, the first business I set up in, in uh, late 1999 going into 2000 was uh, an information service which was aimed at senior people in the, in the media industry. I mean I built this huge network of people like myself that were learning. You know we'd had to pioneer all these things, web, digital TV. Um, and so I became a consultant helping other organizations. I did some work with NTL on what their digital teletech service could look like. Obviously, that's a cable-based operation, far more capacity. Um, but I also had an information product, which was called The Morning Briefing, which was explaining to senior people in the industry what had happened in the previous 24 hours. And that became, a, as the dot-com bubble eventually did burst, that became the new business for what was then known as Lovelace Media. And 2004, I sold that to the Press Association. So the third time the Press Association had had this huge part of my life. And I stayed on there briefly as um, head of marketing and strategy. And then in 2005, launched the business I'm running now, which is Lovelace Consulting. We do still consult um, on media strategy and all the things going back to my entire career, which has really, really been about this, this convergence of content and technology and the way that television is heading. Um, it, everything sort of comes, comes together. Uh, but what I am doing now is, is actually very different. I am essentially a, an event producer working with big, big media companies like Sky and Freeview, and I produce their um, their annual events, and I work with other uh, industry groups as well, doing doing their events. And again, that brings together all the journalism, the the TV side of it, the brevity, the accuracy of teletext, the scripting, everything in, in one go. So, 
you know, it, it's been a an incredible journey, really. And but those that teletext decade was without doubt the most the most important and biggest thing I've ever done in my career. Um, and you know, I find it incredibly. How can I put it? It's it's just wonderful that there's this group of individuals like yourself out there, um, and a community that that still has this great affection for this medium that you know I miss. I I I still miss it. And the BBC's uh, digital <laughs> news service, which you know they keep on threatening to to stop, um, isn't teletext. And the you know the fun we had with it as well, things like bamboozle and the dating service that we had, you know. Um, I mean that that dating service itself was a another source of incredible stories, some of which I can never actually tell you. <laughs> but you know, people actually got married through that service, and then they started having children. That I was actually invited to their weddings. You know, um, it was incredible. So yeah, an amazing experience and an amazing set of memories, really. But. Um, the position of teletext as a an information medium, I think, is it's in the minds of many, many people. I, now I speak to people that are, you know, um, in their early twenties, and they'll say, "Oh, teletext, um, yeah, my uncle used to use that, or my dad used to love it, or even my granddad used to love it," and that takes me right back to to the being in my granddad's lounge. So, so that's me. Thank you to Graham for contributing to this episode of Teletext People. Lovelace Consulting can be reached at www.lovelace.co.uk. Teletext People is presented by me, Carl Attrell, and is a bite high, no limit production. I really enjoy making these podcasts. However, if you do want to help out with the costs of hosting, you can find my Ko fi link in the notes. <laughs>